I'm Jacob Goldstein. I'm the co-host of Planet Money and the author of the new book, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. You're listening to Books on Pod, hosted by Trey Elling, a great, well-informed interviewer. I love talking to him. Hello, readers. Steve Madden is the founder and former CEO of Steve Madden LTD, and he's telling his fascinating life story in the new book, The Cobbler, how I disrupted an industry, fell from grace, and came back stronger than ever. Steve, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Doing good. So, Steve, this is uh, obviously a memoir of your life, and that includes covering your childhood. What were you like as a kid? <laughs> you know, I was a precocious child, but pretty normal, you know. I was small, so I guess I was very competitive, and I think I was the second smallest in the junior high school grade. I feel like I remember they used to line up according to height. And I was second. There was one guy smaller than me. I wonder if that affected me. Hmm. I grew when I was like 17. Not that I'm so tall, but I grew to a normal height. But, you know, I was an aggressive, obnoxious, competitive kid. What was your first job working with shoes? And what did you learn from that job about the rhythm of retail? It's a very good question. The thing about that is you want to be available, but you don't want to be too pushy. I mean, if you're really trying to become a really good seller, there's nothing worse than someone who's too pushy. God, I mean, I think that's as bad as not being available. So there's a balance there. You have to kind of pick up on that, pick up on that from the customer. Nobody wants too much attention. It's a kind of a turnoff, you know? So you kind of pick it up. It's a bit like dating, right? Mm -hmm. Similar in a way. There's a social tact that comes in play. Yeah, I think so. That's right. You spent a year of college at the U at Miami down in South Florida, but a combo of undiagnosed ADHD, according to you, drinking, weed, and quaaludes kind of torpedoed your grades, leading your dad to cut you off. Why was this the best thing he ever did for you? I like that my father said, why should I waste money on funding your lifestyle? Like, you're not taking this seriously. And there was a lesson in there. The lesson was, no, I'm not here to just spoil you and indulge you. Get on with it already. And so I went to work. And he was right. And I went to work. And, you know, I started my career. It was because of that. You know, I don't know what parents would do today. I mean, my generation, or not my generation as much, but I'm just saying, like, I notice is kids get indulged so badly. It's generational. Like parents go to like practices. You know what I mean? When I was growing up, I was lucky if my parents came to any games that I played, right? <laughs> but they did. I think my father went to one little league game. But it was understood that he was working. And he was working. My father was working. And he was supporting it. So I understood first things first. You know, I understood daddy has to work. So that was a lesson that I got. And I didn't have a resentment over it. But today, I noticed that parents, they call it helicopter parenting. Yep. I noticed it's pretty much everybody that I know. A kid gets their heart broken, let's say, 
you know, a teenager and the parents give the kid antidepressants. And I don't blame the parents because they don't want to see their children suffering. But there seems to be a bit of that going on. I don't know if that was lost on the phone, but do you understand what I'm saying? No, absolutely. There is a balance to be struck with all that. There is a middle ground between how your dad, for instance, went about things versus all these helicopter parents of 2020 where you're there to support your kids, but you also understand the value of letting them fail. And that's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed this book is that throughout your life, you, you embraced your failures and you really tried to learn lessons from those moments. And I think that's what separates successful people from those who are not successful? Well, I don't know if that's true, but I certainly still do that. We make a mistake in business, and I sit down with my associates, my colleagues, and I say, what can we learn from this? How did we mess this up? What did we do? What can we take away from this? Because as long as you're in the game, you're making mistakes. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's exactly right. So I accept that. I accept that. And I try to learn from it. And it's not that hard, really. But what did I do? How did I fuck this up? You know? (laughs) So that was the takeaway from him not funding. You got to let the kids. Yes, you got to let the kids fail. You got to let them learn. So your second job in shoes after you left the U a little while later was at a place called Jildor. You moved from Jildor to uh, wholesaler LJ Simone, which actually provided you your first chance to design shoes. How did you approach designing shoes in those days? I was just trying to find something that I could sell. It was sort of, you know, that bit when they say necessity is the mother of invention. It was a bit of that. So I was trying to make something I could sell to my customers. I think the designer who was an owner, they were involved in some sort of struggle with each other. I remember we're talking about 38 years ago or something like that. But I nipped into the factory and started making a few things. And it seemed I had a knack for what would sell. And that was sort of the beginning. Well, it was interesting to also read that throughout your career in shoes, from the beginning all the way through when you started having successes at Steve Madden, and I'm assuming this is still the case today, is that your study of shoes went beyond just examining the basic design of footwear. How so? Yeah. Well, you know, you got to make them and you got to sell them profitably and you've got to market them. Today, marketing is so important with social media. So all of these things. If you want to be successful, if you want to win, they're all part and parcel of the transaction, you know. But from a design standpoint of view, we're very influenced by the zeitgeist and, you know, what's going on in the world. It's always been that way. Now, things were going so well for you at LJ Simone. I think about a year into things that you moved from Long Island into the city into an apartment in Greenwich Village. This further fueled an unsustainable lifestyle of grinding on the job during the day and getting all sorts of messed up at night. And it actually lasted for several more years. Eight years into your time with LJ Simone, your addiction issues and subsequent behavior caught up with you. Your boss, Jay, told you to clean it up, but you quit. You decided you would just rather move on, and you eventually started your first shoe company with two colleagues called Solier. What was rock bottom for you after that? What was that point where you decided that you did want to finally clean up your act? Well, you know, it's funny because I got sober pretty much at the same time I started my business. It all kind of happened sort of at the same time. 
But if you're stuck, you can't get out of it. It's like you're kidnapped, you know? And you just don't know how to stop. And you want to stop, but you can't stop. You don't know how to do it. And how many times I said to myself, well, today, this is the last day. I'm just going to do it one more time. I say that about chocolate now, but um, <laughs> but there is a way to stop. It can be done anyway. It can be done. But it's an awful lifestyle, just an awful lifestyle. I mean, it may be fun in the beginning, hooting and hollering, but if you're like me and you have substance abuse issues, it's a terrible, horrible life of just a lot of pain and suffering and sick and suffering. People don't know how to get out of do it. You know, it's, it's just they don't know what to do. They want to do it. Many people, some don't, but most do. It's just such an awful life, you know. Well, you were able to kick the habit for several years, and after Solier fizzled out, two former co-workers at LJ Simone approached you about starting a new shoe business. How did the company end up bearing your name? It just came about, you know, like I said, I might as well just call it Steve Madden. I know nobody owns that, and so that worked out well. What else was I going to call it? What did stand-up comedy have to do with the label bearing your name on these shoes remaining pretty oh, plain that, and simple? I, that's a silly thing. You know, it, just, it was just something that I noticed. I liked the serious label in a funky shoe. I thought <laughs> that the contradiction was interesting. And I noticed that a lot of comics, I don't know if this is still the case, but, well, in those days, you know, they would come in very well-dressed, and then they would do these zany routines. So the contradiction sort of worked for them, like dressing serious but acting funny. And it was the same way with the show. It's kind of like a balance that was very important. I'd say it worked for you as well. Yeah, it did. I had a vague idea of your connection to Jordan Belfort and Stratton Oakmont from the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, but how did you initially yeah. hook up with these guys? I went to grade school with Jordan's partner, Danny, and he said, we'll raise money for your company. I know that you're talented and I can get you some money. So that's how it started. And then Jordan came along, a brilliant guy, and... The rest is history. We saw it in the film. How did your relationship with Jordan and his company fuel your addictive personality? Well, when I was involved with the Stratton guys, I was sober. That's in the book. But I started to talk about being addicted to money, you know, different kinds of addictions. But I channeled my addictive behavior into work and building my company. So... You may not be using, but you still have some of the same sort of attributes and same sort of defects of character. The Big Head ads were another big step in the evolution of your company. How'd they come to be? I was kind of always into, there was this kid's book called Eloise at the Plaza. And I always thought it was very New York and very funky. And I wanted something like that. So... If you look at the big heads, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look anything like Eloise, but that's the genesis of it, you know. And I found this couple of guys that were in the ad business, and they had this camera thing that they did. But we took it from there, you know. And the great thing about those ads 
but it really was the true spirit of the company. And a lot of people in the company worked on the ads. They styled the ads. They thought of the ads. So it's really great. I'm just now sort of thinking about it again, reliving it. And it's a wonderful thing to have, you know, people feeling like, that. wow, they're involved in ads. And they're so different. It, it was nice. It was really a cool thing. Of course, when you're going through it, you don't realize how cool it is. They were great. In the fall of 1998, the company was continuing to blow up, but Jordan and Danny were arrested. Multiple people, your mother included, said that they were rolling over on others. You knew this meant that they were likely ratting on you, too. Eventually, the FBI came to get you on securities fraud and money laundering charges. The Fed yeah. even asked Johnny Law came and tracked Johnny Law came and tracked me down. The story of that is uh, pretty amusing, but I'm going to encourage people to go buy the cobbler to learn the details of that one. But the feds actually asked you to roll over on other guilty parties to ease your own punishment, but you declined. Why is that? I just felt like I was guilty. And I don't know if this is exactly what I thought, but, you know, I just wanted to get it over with, put it behind me. I didn't want to keep going in on this thing and doing all this crazy stuff. I did it. I got caught. It's with my friends, and, you know, I did the time, and it was horrible. It was part of my past, but I ended up okay. You, I don't know what to say. Well, I didn't do it. I wanted it to be over with. I didn't want to keep this thing going. I went in. I pled out. I pled guilty. I took the punishment, and that was it. And well, it seemed like it would have gone on forever otherwise. Ultimately, you were given... Yes, 41 months in prison, you were scheduled to serve your term at the Elgin Federal Prison Camp, a minimum security prison on the Elgin Air Force Base. The prison had such a cushy reputation, people called it Club Fed. Was it that easy? No, no, that's not true. You know, it wasn't like Shawshank Redemption, but it was tough. It was prison, and you're away from your loved ones, and you're eating shitty food, and it's terrible. It's terrible. Guys get tatted or swole in prison to signify how doing time changed them. Did you make any significant changes along these lines to your personal appearance? Yeah, you know, I started working out a little bit and trying to get fit because you have a lot of time on your hands. So that was one thing I did. Read a lot, a lot of reading. It was just a heartbreaking experience, just the worst. It's just terrible. I don't know about you, but if you have a fear of prison, it is intelligent. It is terrible, awful experience. Yeah, and to add to the horribleness of all of it, with about 13 months to go in your sentence, you were feeling pretty good about things. You were about to get furloughed for eight days and then fulfilling your final three months at Elgin because of time served and being a part of the substance abuse uh, recovery program in prison. But then something very unexpected happened that really extended your sentence and actually caused you to uh, switch prisons from Elgin to Coleman. I'm still just heartbroken that that happened to you. Yeah, you really are good. It was the most unbelievable thing. What I had done was I had given money to another prisoner guy was helping me out in prison, stuff like that, and I sent them $300. You know, what you do is you send it to their commissary account, and for that I got roped off. I'm just trying to help somebody out who had very little, and yeah. somebody who... The kid couldn't buy soap. Yeah, it's just... He didn't have soap, this kid. 
but he did like little things for me and that was a tough tough break it was awful and i felt terrible for you in making that switch from elgin to coleman (laughs) but you actually became something called the mackerel king at coleman you know mackerel was the currency and somebody did your laundry or somebody smuggled cereal out of the kitchen you gave them a mackerel so the idea was to get a lot of mackerel and by mackerel you Uh, mean fish right Fish, you know, it comes in a bag, you put it on soup, or you put it in rice and beans, and it tastes good, and it was very important in prison. So, I did. You finally got out in April 2005. How much did the world change when you got out of prison? How much? That's, I mean, the big thing is the phone, right? That's the big change. Hmm. The phone is complete game changer in so many ways and in business the social media is the game changer which is connected to the phone you know but things are the same the same principles apply product first hard work thrift picking good people that kind of thing how would you change when you got out got married had kids i don't know maybe slower this is the toughest thing this covid I've been out since the beginning of 2005, so we're talking almost 15 years, and this is for sure the hardest thing. Life has really changed. Last couple of questions, Steve. You write that creating encompasses a lot more than making art. Among other things, it involves the ability to lead. How so? That's very well put. Did I say that? That's good. Creativity, there's so much to it. I mean... When we think of creative, we think of Paul McCartney or Mozart or Picasso. And they are super creative. Willie Nelson, he's an Austin guy, right? Isn't he? Yeah, he is. is. Willie in Austin? I don't know. I love him. (laughs) I think he's so great. He's the best. I was just listening to Looking Back Texas. There's a song that him and Waylon Jennings did. Yeah. Uh, I was just singing it at the top of my lungs in my car. There's so many ways of being creative. A cook can be creative, not just a writer or an artist. There's creative business people. There's creative deal guys. There's creative disc jockeys. The ability to think different than other people and to have courage and do things that weren't done before. That's just as much creativity as Van Gogh. So it was very narrow, the thought about being creative. Like, you know, it was like somebody that was creative. I mentioned this in the story that they could play piano or draw. Somebody drew, oh, he's very creative. He could draw, you know. (laughs) But really, there's so much more to it. There's so much more to it. And to do things that weren't done before. To have the courage to do things that weren't done before is a high form of creativity. Well said there. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You quote writer Marge Piercy in agreeing with her sentiment that quote, my strengths and my weaknesses are twins in the same womb. Why does this resonate with you? Well, that's interesting, but I don't remember saying that. Maybe it's in there, but I, what I am fond of saying is Roger Kipling wrote a poem called if, And it's a great poem. And he talks about the twin imposters 
I don't know if this is exactly paraphrasing it, the twin imposters, success and failure. It's a fine line, right, between those two things. People get very smug when they get successful. They think they've always been successful. But there's such a fine line, and it's the little things that can make the difference. I love that. I have to reread it, actually, because I probably misquote it all the time. (laughs) One of the last things that you write in this book is that being present helps you see the world in authentic ways. What do you mean by that? Well, unfortunately, I'm not always present. (laughs) It's hard. Yeah, it is. It's very hard, especially with the phone now. Yep. It makes it really hard. I would just say that being present is a helpful tool to functioning today for anyone staying in the moment. It's not very mysterious, but it helps with fear, too. And finally, you model your team building around Gil Brandt, the legendary former oh, GM you know of what? the Dallas Cowboys. Yes, sir. Oh, that's a, such an obscure reference. Most people don't know. But what the point was that Gil Brandt, was, he was a general manager. I think it's misquoted in the book. But the point of Gil Brandt and the Dallas Cowboys, they were very famous because they always picked the best athlete. They never really picked for a position. And it's just a kind of a sports reference. And I always found that to be very interesting. When they went to the draft, they say, like, we need a running back and we need a cornerback. You know, they would just pick the best athlete. And it worked out. I mean, the Cowboys were amazing for so long. When I was coming up, so that was really all I meant. I grew up in Big D, and that resonated with me, hearing uh, what you were saying about that. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying, right? You remember that. 100%. That's why I wanted to make it my last question. I thought it was a fantastic analogy. Tom Landry, Gil Brandt, believe it or not, Tom Landry was an assistant coach for the Giants. Most people don't know that. And he was an assistant coach with Vince Lombardi. Yep. It's hard to imagine those two guys being assistant coaches together. One of the great innovators in the history of football. Yes. Two of them were amazing. Steve Madden is the founder and former CEO of Steve Madden LTD, and he's telling his fascinating life story in the new book, The Cobbler, How I Disrupted an Industry, Fell from Grace, and Came Back Stronger Than Ever. Steve, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this great book. All right, buddy. Nice to talk to you. And thank you for listening today. You can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. Talk to you next time on Books on Pod.